Praise the Lord. At this time, I want to continue our series, what we believe and what our foundations are. And these messages are coming right out of our catechism book, but more than the catechism book. How many know that there's another book that supersedes the catechism book? How many guys know that there's another book that supersedes the Constitution and Bylaws? Which book is it? I'm going to pretend that you're confirmands. Which book is that? Hold it up. This is the most important book that you will ever have. And this is where one of the confirmands, the confirmands know this question is coming to them. What is the source of all Christian doctrine? Well, it's the Holy Bible. That's where we receive all of our doctrines from is God's word. And I want to go through this because it's important that that you know and that you are well versed and that you're fluent in the language of the church. And the church doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. Again, another one of the answers in our confirmation, who is the head of the church? He is Christ, Christ the Lord. He is the head. He is the one that we follow. He's the one that we listen to, and he's the one that we pursue. So in dealing with this, we need to understand all of these things are for our benefit to know, and it's for our using them in the ministry to the people that we are called to, which is this Burleson County area for us to touch and to minister to people here. And the larger we become, the wider our reach goes. That's why I would love for the Lord to increase our tent. Uh, the Bible has a, there's a scripture that says that, that the pegs, the, the, the tent stakes need to be increased to not just our community, not just the people that are here, but even out into the nations. So we're into the ordinances. We were talking about this last week. The ordinances are preaching the word and the sacraments, which include baptism and communion. I don't have this in my notes, but you know what? I, I think we should add into that, into those ordinances. The, the, mean, the principal means of grace shouldn't just be what happens in here. It should be ministry. A church that's not ministering is not growing. A church that's not reaching out is dying. And I believe that ministry should be a, a vital part of what each church does. You often heard people say, we need to get outside these four walls. Well, we need to, we need to increase our vision past these four walls and realize that God just doesn't want to meet us here. He wants to live in us in the world that we live in. So today, last week we talked about baptism. And we talked about preaching. Today we're going to talk about the sacrament of communion. And we're going to answer several questions. Number one, what is communion? There, there are, there is some confusion in, in, in church, uh, uh, culture today about exactly what communion is. Also, who is the owner? There's another issue. There's some confusion as to who owns the communion. I'll explain that also. And then finally, who is it for? Who is communion for? Who is it destined for? Who is eligible for it? And who uh, is qualified to receive from the Lord's table and to, to operate in the sacraments? So communion's origin is Passover. That's where it comes from. That's where it began, and that's exactly what Jesus was doing on the night that he was betrayed. As we go to Exodus chapter 12, we're going to read verses 3 through 14. This isn't about Jesus. This is about where it actually totally began, Passover began. Tell the whole community, God is telling us through Moses and Aaron, the children of Israel, they've already gone through and they've experienced the plagues in Israel. I mean, sorry, in Egypt. And all these plagues were meant to, to cause Pharaoh to let the people go. So they've experienced the flies, the frogs, the blood in the water, the pestilence, the, the animals were dying, hail coming down from the sky, darkness. I mean, all of these, all these different pestilences took place in Egypt. 
even more than I just described. And then it came to this final one, which was the death angel. And the death angel was to pass through the, the, the country of Egypt, and it was to smite, to kill their firstborn in every household. Their firstborn in every household. And not only the people, but the animals too. It was an incredible moment. Something was happening here. And God is giving the Israelites instructions of how to survive this death angel. Now, every other plague, the Israelites were in a, in a place called the land of Goshen. Okay? So here they are in Goshen. Keep that scripture up, buddy. I'll get to it in a second. And in Goshen, that was where the Israelites lived. That was the best land in Egypt because of Joseph. So here they were in Goshen, and all these other plagues struck. It happened everywhere but in Goshen. The hail hit everywhere but in Goshen. There was a wall of darkness all around Goshen, but Goshen was light. The flies were not in Goshen. The blood, the blood in the water didn't happen in Goshen. It did not happen in the land where the Israelites were because God was protecting them. But here is something different. There's not going to be this invisible shield over Goshen for the death angel. The Israelites didn't have to obey anything for the other plagues. But something different is happening here. Because now obedience is required for Israel to survive the death angel. And this is a precedent for God's people. Because God's telling us now, he's saying, listen, if you're going to walk with me, if you're going to fellowship with me, obedience is a key for the rest of your life. You need to take these preparations. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. Not a goat. Not a cow. God is. I want you to listen how specific God is here. A lamb for his family. One for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males, were specific, without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or from the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. So they didn't go to the fellowship hall. This was on their own homes. The blood was on their own homes. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire. He's even telling you how to cook the lamb, along with bitter herbs and bread made without Yeast, which is why we have the wafers that are so tasteless. The, the, uh, the Israelites called it the bread of haste because they didn't have time for the bread to rise. The Lord was coming so quickly. And this is also a symbol in the Lord's Supper or communion. When we partake of this unleavened bread, it is to remind us that we don't have time to goof around. The Lord can come back at any moment. Now, don't eat the meat raw or boiled in water. Again, this is not for your personal comfort. This is not made according to your taste. Do you understand that? This is to the Lord. But roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. 
Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. I've given instructions to uh, brother, 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 uh, uh, brother Servic, and also uh, the fellows that are helping him with the communion. That when we finish communion, something has been sanctified before the Lord, something that we've taken before the Lord, that it is not to be recycled. It is to be, it is to be to either burn the fire or eaten or drink it. Because we're trying our best to stay in accordance with what is being said here. To be consistent. This isn't something that we save money in. This isn't something that we're frugal with. We need to obey the Lord as close as we can. I've talked to a lot of pastors about this. I've received counsel and I've changed ideas with them. But we want to show reverence to this moment. This is how you're to eat it. This is interesting. With your cloak tucked in your belt, with your sandals on your feet, and with your staff, in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Notice the little g in the word gods. I am the Lord. Notice the capital L in Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence, Passover. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day when you are to commemorate. A day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. A lasting ordinance. Now, this is the origin of of Passover, or what we now term communion or the Lord's Supper. The entire family was to participate in this ordinance. And the understanding that went along with that, was there any if at all? They received these instructions in a very brief amount of time. And you know what? Everything that they did was based on faith and obedience. I have a suspicion that the other plagues... Or nothing more if you say, well, God was showing his power to the Egyptians. My friend, God was also showing his power to the Israelis. Because in order for them to have faith and believe and not perish with the Egyptians, they had to have a holy reverence and respect that it was God that was talking to them. So they went through these great details to obey everything, even though they were limited in their, in their understanding. You see, every ordinance of the church... Every sacrament of church is based on one thing, faith, period. The just shall live by faith. Lean not only your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. God is always about receiving people by faith. These little children that approached Jesus, they went around, the disciple says, you're, you're taking the master's time, and they were stunned when Jesus rebuked them and said, hold on, hold on. These kids are good. They're all right. I want them to approach me. I want to lay my hands upon them. And he blessed those children. So we have an issue here where the entire family is involved. It's a holy ordinance. And there's limited understanding. And the children of Israel are having to operate through faith. And the children are also have the highest faith because they don't know these details. They're just doing what mom and dad has taught them to do, just like you and I do as the Father teaches us to do. Friend, if you're ever in the ministry, 
and you're following the Lord, God is not one who usually gives you a five-year plan. God is not one who will usually give you a year plan. Sometimes he won't even give you a weekly plan. There is a reason that we're encouraged to walk by faith. We don't usually know where we're going or where this is going. We just totally trust and operate in that realm of faith because that's where we find God. And then he says this is to be an ordinance forever. Forever. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 20. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, this is the Passover. Remember, unleavened bread was the bread of haste to be taken, and they had to eat it quickly because their their depart was going to be quick. They didn't have time for the Easter rays or rise. So this is the bread of haste, unleavened bread. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. This is why occasionally on a good Friday, we'll have a Passover in the fellowship building. Because I want you to experience exactly or very close in reading the scriptures even even deeper I don't think I've ever received Passover with a staff in my hand and my shirt tucked under my belt. Although, I guess my shirt was tucked under my belt. But I've never actually done it with a staff in my hand. That would be interesting to actually mimic exactly what they did. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared it. And when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. They were observing Passover. Jesus did not do away with Passover when he did the Lord's Supper. He said some things during that time where he said, this is a a memorial, this is a remembrance of me. But he's not doing away with it. God had, Jesus didn't come to do away with anything in the law. He came to fulfill the law. And he said, I am the Passover lamb. And when they got to the time where they were eating the bread, he said, this, this time that we're eating this bread at this time, we eat bread many times during, during a Passover. But one time, the bread is the bread of affliction. And he said, this is my body. This bread of affliction. And then when they came to many different drinkings of the cup, if you've done this with us, if you haven't, you need to. It's, a, it's an awesome experience. When you drink the cup, you get to a point where you're drinking the cup of redemption. And when we got to that time, he said, this is my blood, the New Testament, the new covenant. And as often as you do this, remember me. So the bread of affliction and the cup of redemption were fulfillment of the Lamb of God. What an incredible, incredible experience. This is what communion is. This is what the Lord's Supper is. It is a remembrance and a memorial. Luke chapter 22, verse 15 through 19. As he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Wow. You know what? We're gonna, when we're going to eat with the Lord, the Bible calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. I've made jokes with my friends. I'll be eating at a favorite Mexican place or whatever, and I'll be just 
just wading into a, a nice hot plate of fajitas. And I look over at a friend. I say, man, I bet you this is going to be at the menu at the marriage supper of lamb. It has to. And you, you can't have that without. It's got to be some banana pudding up there, you know. And you begin to think of your favorite dishes. But the fact of the matter is, the dishes that are going to be at the marriage supper of lamb are going to be lamb. There's going to be bitter herbs. There's going to be the things that we have celebrated. There's going to be the, the bread of haste. And taste will be the furthest thing from my mind at that time. Some people love lamb. I've tasted lamb, but I'm not a regular eater of lamb. I don't know many of you have tried it. If you go overseas, many of the dishes you will have will have lamb in them. And that's what we're going to be eating at the, at the, at the marriage supper of the lamb. And that is what Jesus is talking about. I will not drink this cup or, or do this with you again until we do it together in the kingdom. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? I, a banquet hall, I don't know, it's going to be outside, it's going to be massive. And we're going to be with the Lord in an intimate setting. It's going to be beautiful. So, the owner is the originator of the Passover. It is God. He is the one who owns it. The church does not own the Passover. A congregation, a denomination, a movement does not own the Lord's Supper. So, since we don't own it... It is not our place to tell people that since they don't attend our church, they're not welcome to receive the sacraments because it belongs to the Lord. You say, Brother Dave, what do you do when you go to a church that, that doesn't welcome you to the sacrament? I wouldn't take it anyway. You know why? Because there's no need to me taking it if it doesn't belong to the Lord. Because it's not a real sacrament if there's an exclusion. It's not a real sacrament if there are restrictions upon it. Because Jesus will not restrict us from approaching him. If he won't restrict children, he certainly won't restrict you and I. He welcomes all to come. There are warnings given. Where do we get this? Where does this happen? Who, who will I turn away from this sacrament? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 26 through 29. Because my friend, I'm going to tell you something. We're the ones that are in danger. Not children from the sacrament. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning, appreciating, respecting the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment, King James says damnation, on themselves. Now, this is a very, very strong warning. But it's not a warning to the innocent. It's a warning to the guilty. The innocent amongst us are children. And we know what Jesus has already done with the kids. Forbid them not to come to me. Let them come. Let them come. And we saw the precedent in, in Israel, in Egypt. The whole household received of the Lord's table. They all received of the Passover. No one was forbidden to approach the Lord. Jesus is calling us the people that are in trouble. The people that are in danger are people like you and me. The older you are, ladies and gentlemen, the more baggage that you have. There are people that come to church with a U-Haul tagged on back on the behind them of issues, problems, unforgiveness, unrepented sins, all kind of things. We're the ones that are in danger. An innocent child, oh my word, an innocent child, they're clean before God. They're innocent before the Lord. But you and me, that's why from this pulpit 
to the seats in this congregation before we receive of the sacraments, we say, let's pray. Let the Holy Spirit shine his light in you and let him find any weakness, any inequity, any sin. And then you say, Father, I renounce that sin. Cleanse me and make me whole and forgive as you have been forgiven. See, it's us that we need to really be careful about. That's why when we get to this time that we pray, it's a sincere prayer. It's not a ritualistic thing that we're... No, you get as sincere as you've ever been in your life before you receive that sacrament. I was telling Rhonda last night that myself and whoever's serving with me, you're, you're privy to see almost every person receive the sacraments. And if you're an elder of this church or you're a, a former pastor, you've helped me... Uh, pass out the sacraments, you will agree with what I'm about to say. This church, this congregation, I see sincerity on every face. Every face. Some of you, often when you come down, I try to give you a, a pleasant greeting. It's good to see you. I love you. But some of you, some of you just walk past me, you don't even acknowledge my greeting. And, you know, and I look and I say, wow, they're into this. <laughs> they're all over this, you know. Not distracted. It's not a time that we talk about how we got here, whatever. It's very sincere. And I feel and sense the sincerity in people as they come and approach you. If I say something nice to you, then just let me say something nice. It's because I love you. But I want you to know that when you come here, before you walk that aisle, make sure there's nothing there. And you think, well, uh, you know, uh, God's forgiven me all my sins. There's another piece of work we've got to do. We have to forgive others. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Forgive your debtors as, you know, forgive the debts as we forgive those who are debted against us. We're to clean ourselves all the way through, not just between us and God, but between us and our brother who we have ought against. It's a dangerous thing to receive sacraments in that state. So the warning comes upon us, not the innocent. If you're capable of sin, let's deal with the children. If you're capable of sin, kids, if you've disobeyed mom and dad, if you've cheated, lied, you've committed a sin, you are capable and ready for salvation. You're ready for it. So, if you're saved, then you are eligible to receive the Lord's sacrament. Period. Again, it's an act of faith that you are demonstrating. And it's something that the Lord welcomes you to if you're saved. You say, well, Brother David, you know, my child, they, you know, they, they don't really know. Well, the Bible says to train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. Every child that I see that is of age, if I see a child come to the front and they're of age, they're capable of sin. You know what I'm counting on you doing, mom and dad, guardian, uncle, aunt, grandma, grandpa. Here's what I'm counting on you. Not only me. But Jesus is counting on you also doing this. Train that child. Teach them the way. Tell them how they can accept Jesus. Mom, Dad, why can I get any bread? Why can I? Well, I need to explain that to you. You've got 30 days to explain salvation to that child. You've got 30 days to do what I did with every one of these confirmants. I took them through the process I'm about to give you. And you train that child. You talk them about it. And then you pray with them. For salvation, so that they can approach the Lord as they are completely welcome to, as biblical precedent has showed over and over again. The sacraments are not administered based on understanding, my friend. They're based on faith. I don't understand the deep mysteries of God. His ways are past finding out, the Bible says. 
I am an amateur compared to anyone who's died and gone and seen the Lord face to face. So we approach the Lord by faith. The same faith you were saved by, the same faith you were healed by, the same faith that you received sacraments by. Obedience and faith is how we always approach the Lord. Now, mom and dad, you've got a month, you've got a month to teach your children. Actually, the confirmands are going to receive communion at the end of this month, and then the first Sunday in September, they're going to receive, we're, we're going to receive uh, uh, communion again because we do that on the first Sunday of every month. So we're going to do back-to-back services where we offer the Lord's Supper. But parents, here's what I want you to do with your kids. It's called the Romans Road to Salvation. If you're not sure, if there's a doubt in your mind, I want you to get these scriptures, write it down. I think they're in your bulletin, but here they're on the screen. You can go to Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. As it is written, there is no one that is righteous, not even one. I went through this with every confirmant last week. There's nobody that is righteous, no, not one. Every one of us have a debt of sin hanging over us. We have a responsibility to take care of that between us and God. You don't go to heaven because you love fishing, you love hunting, you're nice to your dog. You don't go to heaven because you love your wife and don't beat your children. You don't go to heaven because you've never robbed anybody, raped anybody, or murdered someone. You go to heaven based on faith in Jesus Christ and his word, and you've asked him to come into your heart, and you've acknowledged that you have sin that, that, that we were born into, that we need salvation, we need a savior, we need a champion. Again, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even the good people, everybody, has a need for salvation. Romans 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man, Adam, and death through that sin that came upon all of us, whether we wanted it or not, in this way death came to all people, because all have sinned. I'm not okay, you're not okay. Not without Jesus. We're in big, big trouble. Okay? So, God doesn't leave us there. In in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. You have to pay for sin. But you don't pay for salvation. Again, this is the difference between us and Catholicism. Catholicism teaches that you're saved by works. You're saved because you get penance and you say so many Hail Marys. Protestantism says you're saved by grace through faith. That's in Ephesians chapter 2. This is the difference between us and, and, and this is what makes us a Protestant. Is we believe that we're saved by faith and not by our deeds or by our works. He says we're saved by faith lest any man should boast. We're not saved by works. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And friend, if you ever felt that you earned a gift, it wasn't a gift. You cannot earn a gift. There cannot be a requirement for you to receive a gift. If you do, then you have just earned something and it hasn't been given freely to you. Gifts are given to you just because people love you, not because you deserve it or because you have earned it. And then Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners in trouble, Christ died for us. It's all him, period. Whether I liked it or not, whether I wanted it or not, Jesus knew what was best for me, and he died for me. He is my champion, and I love him for that. And by faith, I embrace that. I celebrate that. God is so, so awesome. And then Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus says, 
here I am. I've done my part. I've done everything I can do. And not only have I done that, but I stand at the door and I knock. I'm talking to you. The only way that you're exposed to this is through His grace. He's knocking on your door. And if you hear His voice, if you feel that want to, that need to, and you open the door, which is your obedience yielding to His majesty, He promises you something. He says, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Wow. He's going to have fellowship. He's going to be our friend. When you go eat with somebody, that's what you're demonstrating, fellowship and friendship. Jesus said, if you ask, I will step in to the door. Parents, I've given you the model. You have the scriptures. It's your job and responsibility to lead your children to Jesus. And don't expect them to go, Woo, hallelujah. (laughs) Some people have a jumping fit. Some people just keep staring at you. Because it's based on faith and not feelings. It's based on believing God's word to be true. Then I lead, I lead the young people or whoever I'm praying with. I lead them in a prayer. And when I finish that prayer, they go something like this. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I admit my guilt before you. I need to take care of some things. Only I can do this. So I bend my will to yours. And I ask that you would forgive me my sins. Come into my heart. Change my life. And for the rest of my life, I'm going to do my best to obey you and follow you by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. And look at that person and say, based upon your faith in God's word, this being the ultimate truth, do you believe that? Yes. Okay, so you just read where Jesus said, if you ask him to come into your heart, what will he do? They say, he'll come into my heart. I say, did you ask him? Yes. Did you mean it? Yes, sir. Where's Jesus? He's in my heart. That is a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And once you've done that, then you're eligible to receive communion. It's a process of obedience, not work and requirements. Then bring them to the Lord's table. Help them practice their faith. Again, Rhonda's iron to me. That's not a bad thing. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. You know, we usually agree. Sometimes we don't. But on this point, we were agreeing. And she was saying, I said, you know, as children, we need to be practicing our faith. Because by the age of 13 or 14, we've been practicing. Ronna said, yeah, we've been practicing cheerleading. We've been practicing football. We've been practicing baseball. We've been practicing golf. We've been practicing clubs. We're practicing everything. But why in the world should we wait till age 13 or 14 to let our kids begin to practice faith? Especially when Jesus says, come, don't forbid them, bring them to me. He puts a responsibility in us as moms and dads, as pastors and elders. Luke chapter 18 and verse 16, almost done. But Jesus called the children to him and said, as I spoke with these kids a minute ago, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the, the kingdom of God belongs to people like this. Wow. What an incredible statement that Jesus makes here. He sets a precedent of who he wants. It's God's will for the household to practice their faith. 
Who's it for? It's for God's family. It's not for new Tabor brethren people. It's not just for First Assembly people or First Baptist or First United Methodist people or a Church of the Nazarene people. God's family. If you attend another church under denomination, I don't care if you're a card-carrying member. It matters not to me and especially not to God the Father. He says, come on. Are your sins under the blood? Come on. I want you to receive. I want to have fellowship with you today. I want you to practice your faith. And bring the kids with you. You say, well, what if my kid is... You've got a month. You've got a month. If your child is capable of sin, then you should talk to them about receiving Jesus as their Savior. Seth, how old was Jesse when you when you read when you uh, led him to the Lord, buddy? You remember? I think he's five years old. Some people come to the the knowledge of good and evil at different times than other people. People in the church, you don't know Jesse. You don't. You had to know Jesse when he was like this. ADD, HD, whatever, MD, whatever. He had it all. And we didn't medicate the child. We just let him be. And I'm telling you what, he was a pistol. People were sitting there said, I remember one old gentleman looked at me. He, he, he's watching Jesse. He just standing there with his arms folded in the foyer watching Jesse run around. And he had a smile. I said, what are you smiling for? Because I was, Jesse, sit down. Put that down. Son, get rid And he was just sitting there smiling. He says, I'm just wondering what's going on inside that mind of his. You know, Jesse could just look at you and smile and you could, you, you just wondered what he was up to. A group of people came at me about the same week that, Je- that Jesse was led to the Lord by Seth. And they said, they said, um, Brother Johnson, what's up with Jesse? Nothing. He's good. Why? There's a difference. Something's different. I, don't, I can't put my finger on it, but something's different. And then we found out that Seth had, I don't know where you guys were, buddy. Were you in a Sunday school room, backyard? I don't know what you were doing on the trampoline. Who knows? But he led him to the Lord. And something happened in that little five-year-old life that he accepted Christ as his personal Savior. And since five years old, Jesse has been practicing his faith. It makes me wonder. It really makes me wonder. Do I think these three boys are in church because they're preacher's kids? No, I know lots of preacher's kids who aren't in church. I wonder it's because they've been practicing. Think about it. It's concerning to me that oftentimes when we go through confirmation, the kids disappear. They just disappear. And maybe it's because they've just begun to practice at age 14 or 15. Consider this, folks. I want you to find the Scriptures. Talk to the Holy Spirit about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. I said this last week. If you're feeling restriction, if you're feeling pressure, it's not God. It's not God. We serve a God of liberty. As a choir director, I was a minister of music before I was a pastor. Man, if you were my choir, I, I was the hammer. I really was. I'm not this way to these folks at all. My wife was in my choir before she was my wife. She couldn't stand me. When we started dating, she says, Boy, this is a different guy. You're not that bad. I was just so rigid. And so legalistic about what you must do to present yourself before the Lord. We had a guy that played drums, violin, and I don't know, what was that, a tuba? I don't know what he had. He had some, he, 
and he, he would he would go from harmonica to the drums to 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 the violin in one song during service. Of the men, this isn't the Mandrell family, you know. And I pulled him aside and just told him, I said, "Man, play one instrument. Don't play many." And I, I was just so, mm. and I in the process I offended people, and I chased them away from serving the Lord. And the older I've gotten, I said, was the Lord telling me to do that? No. It was my sense of righteousness. It was my sense of what I think thought needed to happen. It wasn't God. When I asked the Holy Spirit, He said, no, that wasn't me. I understand what you're doing. You're trying to respect me, but I haven't required that. So the stress I was bringing, I was doing it myself. I was becoming an offense that the Lord was not a part of. Talk to the Lord. You'll be shocked. He'll tell you some things. The Lord's table is not to be feared. It's to be celebrated. Especially to those who are innocent. So I want to encourage you to this today. If the Lord isn't restricting them, for years and years that I've been here, I've been saying we are an open communion church. And that hasn't been totally true. It hasn't been totally true. We're open to people that come in. Many times because of tradition to our own children, we have restricted them. If they're old enough to sin, they're old enough to be saved. If they're saved, the Lord welcomes them through faith, just as he did those households in Egypt to approach him and partake in the Passover. It's practicing their faith. And I don't know about you, but I want my kids to practice, 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 practice. Because we've been told, not by the Bible, but through this world, practice makes perfect. And we know that God says He wants us to perfect our faith. Well, how can you do that other than to practice? I encourage you to practice your faith. Stand with me, please. And let's practice this statement that is in every church that I know of that believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's called the Apostles' Creed. Let's repeat this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He went to the place of departed spirits. The third day He rose from the dead, He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Do you believe that? Amen. If I were to ask any one of you, including myself, to explain each detail of what you just confessed by faith to the Lord God, to His satisfaction, I would dare say that each and every one of us would be a miserable failure. We'd have a difficult time. Yet, we stand upon that. Yet, we practice that. How do we do it? Not through human understanding, but we do it by faith because that's how the just live, is by faith. Amen? Remain standing, open up.